You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. We are in the midst of a sermon series entitled God's Prescription for Resolving Regret. And man, it's been exciting. I've, I've had more opportunity to talk with people throughout this week. I think uh, somewhere in the vicinity of 26 different appointments, dealing and, and praying and helping folks who are responding in a way that is just, I think, pleasing to God. And it just, uh, it's a testimony of the fact that the Holy Spirit of God is working and moving. And we pray that he will continue to do so as we look at this prescription. And we've described it that way. And today, it's a little different. Today, I'm going to be uh, very single, singly focused on something that is very hard to do. In fact, I'm asking everybody who is with us this morning to do something that is very difficult, super difficult. One of the hardest things to do. It seems like Christians are not really good at this. I wish they were. And, and, and so part of why I'm speaking on it is that we might uh, consider this and, and, and do this. Because if you do this, what I have come to found is you go from average to exceptional. This is something that when people do it, they end up way better off. But if they don't do it, they end up worse off. This this is something, and we'll see this this morning, that Saul, King Saul, in 1 Samuel, he did not do this. And it ended up in his destruction. And this is something that King David, though he faced some of the same sins and problems and issues in life, he did do this. What I'm going to challenge you with in just a moment. He did do it. And Saul went on to be a great king, a man after God's own heart. So I'm asking all of us this morning to really and truly take responsibility for yourself. For where you're at. For where you're going. To leave off once and for all the rationalization. The blame shifting the excuse making, and to determine that you are going to experience the triumph of personal responsibility. And that's what I'm asking all of us to do. Me included. All of us to take personal responsibility. Now, as I get into the subject, I I determined and actually came across a testimony that I want to share with you via video. It's the testimony of a pastor by the name of Dave Wilson and his wife, Anne. I'm going to show you that all of us do have problems, even pastors. And so for about three and a half minutes, I want them to introduce. And I want you to get to meet them and, and, and they'll share with you back and forth something they went through. And then at the end of the message, I hope that everything I say in between these two portions of the video will bring the sermon and the decisions and kind of where we're at all together. So pay close attention and listen to this testimony. Marrying Dave Wilson was the most exciting thing I could even imagine. I just had these pictures in my head of what Dave was going to be like. He's the hottest, most godly. He's going to lead me spiritually. It was the most anticipated thing of my life to marry him. I was married 10 years, and then we started embarking on the dream of our life, which was starting this church. We just had this vision of wanting God to do something 
great in terms of reaching people. Couldn't believe that God would use us to reach thousands for Christ, and it was an absolute dream come true. The dream started to become a reality, but it was becoming a very difficult reality. I basically got two or three jobs going all at the same time, trying to be a dad, trying to be a husband, trying to live my dream of starting, help starting this church. He was gone more and more and more. I'm at the same time the Detroit Lions chaplain, so I'm leading Bible studies, I'm on the road with the team. And I would say things like, honey, you've got to be here. Like, the boys are growing up, I need you, the boys need you. I'm longing to spend time with you. And he's like, oh, I know. I thought I was doing great as a husband, as a dad. I preach this stuff. I know, you know, what the Bible says about marriage. And I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm living it pretty good. And we've got a pretty good marriage. I would put my marriage up against anybody's. He would walk out the door and I'd be like, wait, you're leaving again tonight? And he'd be like, yeah, don't you remember I had this meeting and then I have to go here and I have to speak to these people? And I'd be like, whatever. Great. You know what? I'll put the boys to bed by myself again. That's great, honey. See ya. I would have said to you on a scale of 1 to 10, my marriage is probably a 10. If not a 10, it's a 9.8. And I guarantee you my wife would agree. And I would have probably said we're a 1, maybe like a 0.5. Um, and I think he was totally clueless to that, which then that made me even more angry because I'm thinking, how do you not know how bad we're doing? On May 24th, 1990, it was our 10-year anniversary, and I sort of surprised Ann with a 10-year anniversary date. We dressed up, went to a really nice restaurant, and I sort of set it up with the waiter while we were having dinner. When I would cue him to sort of give him a look, he was supposed to bring a rose over. And so I cued him early in the dinner, and he brought over a rose and laid it on the table, and we talked about year one. He was like a little boy that night, like waiting for the next thing to happen. And I looked over later and he brought another rose. So anyway, every rose was a year and we would talk about that year. He was so sweet. He even planned what he was going to say when each rose arrived. On the way home, I thought it'd be pretty cool to uh, park in the parking lot where we were about to start our church. And Ann hadn't even seen this, so I thought it'd be pretty cool to park there, maybe pray about what God could possibly do. And to be totally honest with you, I thought we should just park. I know Dave Wilson. I knew that there was like this ulterior motive where it was like, yeah, we're going to park here. And, you know, he's all about the parking part. And so um, I kind of knew that was coming. So I leaned over to kiss Ann. And uh, as I, you know, lean over to kiss her in the passenger seat, she sort of pulls away. Uh, I just was like, I can't even, honey, I, I, in my head, I was thinking, I cannot even go there. So I pull back and I look at her and I say, is something wrong? She looks at me, I'll never forget this, and she goes, well, yeah, there is something wrong. And I'm like, what's wrong? And she says, well, to be honest with you, I've lost my feelings for you. It's true that we all have problems. I mean, 10 years into marriage, a successful church plant, I mean, things are going well. But here we see right before our eyes in the testimony of a pastor a problem. Now I want to take a moment and leave that where it's at. We'll pick it up in just a moment. Taking personal responsibility is not popular. It's not popular. In fact, it goes against the grain of our fallen nature. Our sinful bent does not want to take personal responsibility. Our first reaction in the flesh would be to blame shift, to 
point some, uh, at someone else to say, you know what? It's, 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 it's this reason. It's, it's somebody else. It's my parents. It's my pastor. It's my past. It's something else. It's, I, I, I just, this is why I am like I am. It's very difficult to get a person to own their own behavior. It's difficult. And I can say that even after, you know, a long tenure of being married, experiencing some of these things in my own life, and after being a pastor for many, many years, and hearing these things often and over again in my office and in conversations. So I want to take a moment. We've looked at the lives of Peter and Judas. And we've compared those and the outcomes of their lives. I want to begin for the next couple of weeks to look at the lives of King Saul and King David. And I'd like to take just a look, a close look, at the two journeys that they took and how their outcomes ended up being and how personal responsibility, taking it or not taking it, affected the outcome. So let's get right into the message. Number one, if you would please mark this down in your notes, personal responsibility is blocked by rationalization. Now we're going back just a step, but we're going to, we, we really need to, since we're looking at the lives of, of Saul and David. And since we talked about God's prescription for regret being, instead of rationalizing when I experience regret, I will, and there's a list of things that we're attempting to do here. We've got to look at the rationalization here in Saul's life. And so here in Saul's life, as we introduce first Samuel chapter nine to you, we look for just a moment at this journey the children of Israel were taking, right? It's a crazy story. In fact, it's, it, you know, from Genesis to the book of Ruth, it's, it's those, I think, seven chapters that deal with a lot of ups and downs in the lives of the children of Israel. But ultimately, there was no king in the land. They had a king. He was the Lord God of Israel. But you see, they were now in a pagan country under pagan control who uh, they had a king and they were looking at the children of Israel as where's your king what's up with you guys man you guys should have a king and so as a result of of this constant uh pressure they began to beg God for a king be careful what you beg God for be careful when anything becomes more important than him When we want someone to be more important than him in our lives, when someone is sitting on the throne of our lives uh, above and apart from Jesus Christ, you're not in a good place. And so let's look at the text, shall we? First Samuel chapter nine, verse two, they, they got a king and his name was Saul. He was a handsome dude. In fact, it's interesting that two times in the same verse, it refers to the fact that he was so good looking. He was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he was. In fact, not just handsome, he was also head and shoulders above everyone else. He was tall, probably slender, had a great physique. I mean, more than anybody else in the land, this dude had it together. And to look at him from the outside, you would think, Oh yeah, this was the choice, the best choice, the biggest choice. There's no question about it. But you know, as you look into Saul's life shortly after 1 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, you find out he had a lot of issues. He was very insecure. In fact, when they were, you know, trying to, you know, having this big celebration and they were going to actually, you know, make him king, they found him hiding behind the luggage in the baggage. This dude's so insecure, they can't even find him when it's time for him to be introduced as king. 
you, you move on to chapter 13 and there is uh, some fighting going on between the Israelites and the Philistines, right? And that goes on a lot in the Bible. A lot of, a lot of countries that are warring against one another. And here the Israelites are fighting against the Philistines. And there, uh, there came a place where they wanted the favor of God. They really wanted God's favor uh, and they needed it. And Samuel hadn't showed up to give it. And that's what the priest's job was. And so Saul decided, well, I'll take matters into my own hands. And so he brings an unlawful sacrifice to be offered to get God's favor. And Samuel came and saw it, said, dude, this is not good. In fact, to quote Saul, he said, you have done foolishly in not obeying the commandment of the Lord your God. You'll find that in chapter 13. You move on to chapter 14, and it's a crazy thing, but there's this uh, problem that comes up, and it's pretty serious. And so Saul steps up and says, well, well, well I didn't do it, and, and my son Jonathan didn't do it, but I tell you what, whoever did it deserves to die. And he just kind of goes off. And so they say, well, actually, Saul, your son did do it. And he's like, oh, well, then he should die. Can you imagine? This guy's life's out of control. I mean, kill your son over something that you made a stupid comment about? You you went way too far with something and now you want to... And the only thing that saved Jonathan's life, and again, I'm just contextually telling you the story and and, and, just a quick form here is is the people. The people kind of stepped in and prevented that from happening. And so here we see Saul's life being a train wreck. Not because he failed. Because we all fall, James says, in many ways. Did you get that? We all fail. We all fall. Saul's life was not a shipwreck because he failed. It was a shipwreck because he failed to take personal responsibility for his failure. And that's where it starts. Let me define personal responsibility for the message this morning. It is owning the outcomes of all that has impacted my life negatively. Now, notice it's not saying only the outcomes of all of my sin. It is owning that, but it's the outcomes of the negative things in my life, which sometimes are brought on by my sin and by my own doing. But many times they're brought on by somebody else's wrongdoing. Uh, for instance, you know, I, I'm, I'm the, I, I was raised in a, in, a, in a split home. My mom and dad were divorced when I was a young child. And you know, there was a lot of things that came out of that, a lot of difficulty. Sure. And, and many of you have experienced the same thing. Children in this room, even that have been raised in our church and families that have gone through that. I get it. It's tough. It's, it's a negative situation. Sure. But I've had the only outcome of that. I've had to decide that things are going to be different in, in my life as I've moved forward in my own life. I've had to own the outcomes of all that has impacted my life, whether I brought it on myself or somebody else brought it on by taking full responsibility for my role in it, my response to it, and my turning from it, and my own ab- accountability to God in it. And so this is one of the hardest things to do on the face of the earth. And I could really wish I could tell you that Christians are like awesome at this. But we're not. And so I want to trace Saul's rationalizations here. Because it is personal responsibility is blocked by rationalizations. So let's check out here what happened as we look at Paul's life. Or rather Saul's life. Let's take a look real quickly at 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 1. 
If you're looking at uh, a copy of God's Word, you can follow along, make notes in the in the uh, in, in the in your Bibles. But it all comes to a head here. This is where it all comes to a head. So Samuel says to Saul that the Lord has sent me to anoint you king over the people of Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of God. You know, I'm not going to stay here very long, but I want to say this. Now, therefore, listen to the words of God. Don't listen to Erica Pacey's words. I've got a lot of scripture to share with you. In fact, I have so much scripture that I, I got a little, uh, I, I, I actually got a little mixed up this morning. I was having a hard time staying with all of the scripture that I'm using because I'm, I'm probably using about 80 references this morning. That's a good thing, by the way. Amen. The more scripture, the better the sermon. Can I get an amen? That's a good thing. So I've got, a lot of, I've got a lot of words of the Lord for you. That's what I want you to listen to. Listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 2. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up to Egypt. Now go, Samuel says, and strike Amalek. This is the word of the Lord. And devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Wipe them out. Kill both man and women. Child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Wipe them out. Now, in our own modern sensibilities, we struggle with that. And we struggle with that sometimes because we don't understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin. And so we're like, oh, what's up with God? It's kind of arrogant to think that way, though, because at the end of the day, it's nothing less than a miracle that you and I are breathing right now. I mean, we've been reminded in Scripture this morning that we deserve death. That's what we deserve. And yet, by the grace of God, we've been given eternal life through a free gift called Jesus, God's only Son, who died on the cross for our sins. And we can freely accept that free gift this morning and become a child of God by no doing of our own. And so we read on here. So Saul summoned the people of, and he numbered them and Let's just pass, skip down to verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag. Things are getting a little off already. Wait a minute. I thought God said to wipe them out. We're sparing Agag and we're sparing the best of the sheep. Well, hey, it's money. Why would I kill sheep, man? I'm going to get rich off this deal. And the oxen. The fatted calves, the lambs. In fact, I'm going to keep everything that's good. And would not utterly, would not, would not do what God said to do. I'm not doing what God said to do. That's a stupid plan. Why would I do what God said to do? It's not not my best interest. Oh, really? Would not do. Would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So here comes the first rationalization. And that is this in verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I've done good. I've done everything God said to do. The first rationalization is, there is no fault. Just deny, deny, deny. I did everything I was supposed to do, and how many times... Have you seen someone deny? Listen, this happens all the time in Washington, D.C. Let me just tell you. People get away with things because they just, you deny something long enough and eventually it goes away. Just keep denying it. What? What are you talking about? I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I did this. I did everything I was supposed to do. I followed all the rules. There is no fault. 
It's the first rationalization here we see in this story. And so then Samuel says in verse number 14, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? What's up with that? If you did everything you were supposed to do, then why do I hear sheep and, and donkeys and oxen? Something's up. I hear something. And Saul bows up like sometimes we bow up when we're caught. What? 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 I don't hear nothing. I didn't do it. Hey, listen, keep your head up. Keep your shoulders back. Never admit you're wrong. Just keep not admitting you're wrong. Keep not admitting you're wrong. Keep just being prideful and arrogant about it. And eventually, it might go away. So his first rationalization was, there is no fault. But that didn't work. So rationalization number two was, it's not my fault. I mean, there's fault. It's just not my fault. Look at verse number 20. And Saul says to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Saul says, I, I, a lot of eyes here. Always in trouble when you start with I. I, I, I. I have gone on mission on which the Lord sent me geographically. I'm in the right place. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil. Oh, there's fault. It's just not my fault. It's the people. Okay, you caught me, but it's not me. It's somebody else. In fact, I, I, I'm amazed at how many common scapegoats there are today for it's not my fault. I mentioned already parents and pastors, and sometimes it's our past. We're not willing to own the outcome of the things that have happened negatively to us in the past. And so we constantly uh, don't deal with things. We're not going very forward in our lives because we're not dealing with something in our past we're just, you know, using it as an excuse. It's a scapegoat. It's, it's a way to say it's not my fault. And then that didn't work. So we see a third rationalization. It's my fault. Now let's just move on. What's the big deal? Okay, I did it. Look, if you would, at verse 24. He says it's my fault, but really fast. I'm going to read it fast just to... You know, back up my point, of course. <laughs> but I think he, he probably said this pretty fast. I sinned for I've transgressed the command of the Lord and your words was because the, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I, I did do it, but I had, had to do it because the people did it. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. Return with me that I'm about for the Lord. Clean it up. Let's go. Let it go. It's all over. Okay, I did it. Big deal. You caught me. But is he owning it? Is he really owning it? Fine. I'm sorry. Can we just get back to doing what we were doing? Can you imagine, Dave Wilson? Fine, I'm sorry. Give me a kiss. Let's get into it. Let, let's make out. Okay, I'm sorry. That what you want to hear? Great. Now kiss me. Happens a lot in marriages. A lot of men force their way into their wives' lives by just lying and saying, fine, I'm sorry. But they're not owning it. They just want what they want. They want to get through it fast. Let's move on. The rationalization. And we see it here. It just gets worse. And then finally, the fourth rationalization is, it's not my fault. Now just forget about it. Look, if you would please, at verse number 30. Therefore, he says, even quicker, I've sinned. That's it. I've sinned. I've sinned. Now honor me. I've sinned. Now let's get back to how awesome a person I really am. Honor me. Who does that? 
Who, who, who messes up and then says, now make me a, you know, give me a raise. <laughs> Honor me. Before the elders of the people and before Israel. And return with me that I might bow before the Lord your God. Clearly he is trying to sweep something away. Clearly he is not owning it. And I want to make this statement. It's in your notes. An apology is not an eject button from the problem. You just soak, let that soak in for just a moment. Because that's what we want sometimes. That's what Saul wanted. An apology to be an eject button from the problem. It doesn't work that way. If you read through the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, it gets worse. Saul goes from everything we just read. Remember I told you everything kind of came to a head right there? But it goes to jealousy. It goes to bitterness. It even goes to attempted murder. In 1 Samuel 16, 2, you'll see on the screen, Samuel was going to anoint David as king. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. He's a madman. He'll just kill, he, he, he'll, he'll just kill me in, 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 in cold blood. Dude's crazy. He goes to a cultic involvement. And unfortunately, he ends up taking his own life. And let me say this very, very clearly and almost, uh, you know, as, as strong as it, it can be. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm wanting you to hear these words so closely because Satan is behind all of this. Satan would love to destroy every person listening to my voice. And the road he's going to push you down is the road of refusing to take personal responsibility. That's the road he'll push you down. That's the road to destruction. That's the road to ruin. And the doorway to failure or success, the doorway to despair or hope, Ultimately, heaven or hell itself opens and closes for you and for me on the hinges of personal responsibility. Now, to make matters worse, delayed personal responsibility compounds the consequence. Get this. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, Samuel had already said this to Saul. He had already said this to Saul, but now your kingdom, he'd already, he'd already been king. And now he's saying to Saul, that your kingdom is not going to continue. Somebody is going to take your place. God already has a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over the people. And so by chapter 16, Samuel is already out picking a new king. And the man that Samuel chose was David. Now David was something else. Quite, quite the man. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, and I love this verse. In fact, I encourage you to underline this verse. It's one of those verses that every Christian needs to have this verse underlined in their Bibles. It's, it's powerful. It's very important. It's very applicable to us. Do not look on the appearance of his height or his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, well, he looks on the heart. And David had a humble heart. Remember David was the runt of the family. He had seven brothers that all were brought, you know, before the council, if you will. They were all candidates to be king. David was not a candidate to be king. He was this runt little kid that was worthless and nobody even looked at him. In fact, when they suggested him, they're like, no, you don't mean him. He's the youngest. He's he's worthless. He's nobody. But God saw something in him. God saw something unusual in David. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we already see the great story of David and Goliath. And that's just one story. David was humble. David was faithful. David was spiritual. But David was not perfect. He wasn't. No one is. But thank God, it isn't about being perfect. It's about what you do when you fall down. And that's what this series really is all about. So what I want you to see is three rationalizations of David. How is he going to handle this situation? He's been given favor from God and God is blessing him. But all of a sudden, something begins to happen. A problem begins to arise. I want you to notice in 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. This is the great tragedy of David's life. And it's recorded right here in scripture. Look at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. David was a king. David should have been out to battle. Anybody kind of like, whoa, wait a minute. If David was supposed to go out to battle, then why didn't he go out to battle? Exactly. He's already not doing the right thing. He's, he's escaping responsibility. David was at home letting everyone do the fighting for him. So David sent Joab, but David remained at Jerusalem. So one afternoon, when David arose from his couch, he was taking a, just a little stroll. Should have been out in the battle. But he's out on top of the roof, kind of taking a little stroll, drinking a dot Pepsi or a dot... Dr. Pepper, a Diet Coke, or a Diet. (laughs) When you get my age, it's always Diet. So David's out on top of the roof, and he sees a woman bathing. David, look away. David, go back inside. And she she was like very beautiful. So David sent and inquired about the woman. Hey, go find out. Go find out everything you can about her. So the servant said, "Um, okay, but uh, I already know it's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife, the wife, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But David... Now, what should he have done right here? Oh, the wife. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry. I, roof's way over there. Couldn't see the ring on her finger. I, I'm sorry. Sorry. Bad moment. No problem. Thank you for the warning. It's all good. But David sent messengers and took her. She came to him. And he laid with her. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David. David, I'm pregnant. Now, not a trick question. I asked it this morning. I still have my daughter-in-law here with me. Thank you for staying for the second service. How long from conception to delivery, everybody? Nine months. And so I wonder how long before she knew. It, It could have been six weeks, two months. Could have been three months. At the most, four months. More than likely sometime around two months she knew. And she goes and sends and tells David. I think she waited. Me personally, this is totally just a guessing game at this point. We don't have, you know, the exact scenario. But I believe she probably waited. I don't think she wanted to tell him. But she finally told him, I am pregnant. And there we begin to see David's three rationalizations. Number one, let's look at these together. He had a plan. He put a plan together. 
I wish I could tell you something different. Remember I told you Christians aren't very good at taking personal responsibility? Here's an example of that. David says, okay, we've got to come up with a plan. Plan A! Plan A will be to fool everyone about who the father is. I mean, hey, this will be like the quickest baby ever born. Like, I'll get Uriah back over here, get him with his wife. They'll have intimacy together. Everybody will think it's his. This is going to be perfect. So look, if you would, please, at first, uh, second Samuel chapter 11, she says, I'm pregnant in verse five. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. This is such a bad plan. Oh, it's awful. Go get Uriah. So Joab goes and gets Uriah, sends him to, to David. How you doing? What's up? How's Joab? How's the battle going? Oh, it's going pretty good. Well, go down to your house, wash your feet, hang out with your wife a little bit, enjoy some time off. But Uriah had so much integrity, he slept at the door of the king's house with all of his servants and did not go down to his house. Plan A failed. Plan B. If, if I can't fool everyone about who the father is, I'll fool him into fathering. So notice if you would please at verse number 13. And David invited him. Hey, come to my place. Come to my, we'll, we'll eat, we'll have a good time. Here's some, here's some wine, here's some more wine, here's some more wine, here's some more wine. Hey, drink some more. Gets him drunk. He is gone. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Plan B failed. Oh, I got to have a plan C. So if I can't fool everyone about who the father is, and if I can't fool him into fathering, looks like I'm going to have to kill him. Sorry. And that was plan C. We need to kill him. This is the man after God's own heart. Look how fast. Look how far you fall. When you fool yourself into thinking that there is any place you can go after failure other than personal responsibility. Look at verse 14. The unthinkable happens. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. He writes a letter to Joab. He sends it by the hand of Uriah. It's his death warrant. He's basically going to tell Joab to put Uriah at the front of the battle, at the fiercest part of the battle, so that he'll die. In the letter he wrote, sent Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then leave him alone. Just draw back from him. Let him be struck down and die. Uriah was so honorable, he doesn't even open the letter. I don't know that I would have done that. I mean, a king gives me a letter. It's going to take me a while to get it to Joab. I'm thinking, like, I think I'll read this a little. Not Uriah. So much integrity, so honorable. Brings the letter. The men of the city, verse 17, came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. And David said, oh, that's too bad. So sorry. You know what happens. So he takes Bathsheba into his palace. Months and months go by. And his conscience begins to bother him. Because unresolved regret is a malignant tumor growing in your soul. And its only treatment option is personal responsibility. What have you done? What have I done that you need to own so that God can forgive you and restore you? I know it's easy for me to say, 
you know, don't focus on this. And we don't need to focus. Look, church, it sometimes takes reflection to get things right. I got a little uh, graph that I had, Ken, I called him this week. I said, would you just draw a circle with unresolved regret and rationalization? And it's just, it's a cycle. It's a cycle. And if it never ends, here's, the, here's what it leads to. My ruin. That's what it leads to. If, it ne- if you don't stop the cycle of unresolved regret and rationalization, if you don't stop it, it leads to, just ask Judas, just, just ask Saul. But I wonder what's going to happen here. This whole series is about taking responsibility for my regret out of, out of rationalization into responsibility. When Samuel confronted Saul, Saul would not listen. Now David is about to be confronted by somebody by the name of Nathan. Nathan the prophet. Look at it in 2 Samuel with me. Chapter number 12, verse 1. Would he listen? We're about to find out. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, now listen to this story he tells. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's an amazing story. And now, now imagine the king. He's sitting in his palace. He's kicked back. He's got the servant girls feeding him grapes. Another grape. You think the servants knew? You think they knew? How's how does he like act like nothing's ever happened? I mean, the dude's killed his... This is awful. But they're not going to say anything. They're just sort of... Nathan comes in. Nathan says, let me tell you this story, Dave. Dave says, yeah, tell me. What's up? Well, there was a rich man who had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he brought. And he brought it up, and he grew it up with him with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arm. He was like a daughter to him. Wow. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. By this time, David is like outraged. He, he blows a gasket. He can't take it anymore. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he says to Nathan, now just check out the self-righteousness here. Check it out. Rationalizing my sin and avoiding personal responsibility always leads to my self-righteousness. As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. He shall restore, restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. And Nathan says to David, now when I was a younger preacher, I was a whole lot more turn or burn. Bless God, I love somebody. Quit looking at me like that. You know, you ever met a preacher like that? If you went here, you have, because it was me if you were going here a few years ago. Oh, yeah, I, 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 you know, somebody might come to church and actually think like I'm, you know, Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Eric, you know. I mean, you know, we, we, I think every preacher can say sometimes you've preached like this. Come on. You know, I'm not going to ask you because I'm afraid you'll say no. I'm. <laughs> I really am right under the Holy Spirit, but not me. I found out, wow, I was one of those, you're the man, Kevin Connor. You know, you've been to church where they actually called a name out in church. You know, yeah, you have. I know. You've told me the story. <laughs> it's scary. But I got some good news. 
this 56-year-old preacher, when I come to this part of the story, this is how I feel. I don't feel arrogant. I don't feel above anybody. I don't feel like I'm telling you this message, this series, because I've arrived, honestly. It's some of the hardest thing, one of the hardest things I do every week is, is get up here and as one sinner preaching to other sinners how we can all sin a little bit less. That's my motto for my ministry after all these years. David's response is found in verse number 13. He was so repentant, he was moved to personal responsibility. He actually wrote Psalm 51, which is the record of David's repentance after the sin of Bathsheba. This is so incredible that he says these things. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. No more, it's it's not my fault. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's right there in front of my eyes. And this brings up the matter of conscience. The truth of the matter is, is all of us have a conscience. Jot this down. Personal responsibility is demanded by conscience. It's demanded. It's our conscience that leads us to the choice of personal responsibility. That's what Psalm 51.3, I know, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Someone said that conscience is the soul reflecting upon itself. What, what did I do? Or how am I reacting to something that happened to me? Let me give you five facts about biblical conscience real quick. And I don't have much time to elaborate at all but number one all people have a conscience everyone in this room me we all have a sense of right and wrong if you follow your conscience it brings you joy it brings you you're commended your conscience actually will commend you if you violate your conscience it gives you condemnation and shame and guilt and regret and anxiety but everyone has a conscience And then number two, your conscience is conditioned by what you know. Your conscience is not a teacher. It's not, it doesn't, it's not like a, uh, you know, some sort of a moral revelation or something like that. It only holds you accountable for what you know. That's why people say, well, you know, I didn't know that. Well, you should have known better. That's why when I went to Vanuatu and talked to Jeremy Pinero, our missionary over there, and he's telling us that just a, uh, just a few decades ago, these tribal people would have thought it was noble to kill someone, hang them in your hut, eat their bodies, and leave their head hanging there as a trophy. Now, your stomach is churning, and you're like, that's disgusting. It's because you know better. We have a moral compass. We have a standard called the Word of God. Amen. And we know better. We look at our nation and the condition it's in. And we we see so many things that we like, really, this is incredible. Because we know some things. Thank God for the Bible. Amen. Thank God that we can know some things. And God has showed us some things. Thirdly, your conscience is conditioned by what you do. It's conditioned by that. In other words, the more you do right, 
the more tender your conscience becomes. And the more that you do wrong, the more you injure your conscience. It gets injured. In fact, there's three steps to injuring your conscience. The first one is you can wound your conscience. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 talks about wounding your conscience. The Holy Spirit convicts you about something and you do it anyway. And the next time you do it and you keep doing it and you know, I don't, I probably, I need to do it. And and eventually you just wound your conscience. And then the second step to injuring your conscience even worse is called a calloused conscience. Scripture speaks about that in the book of Matthew chapter 13 in the book of Acts chapter 28. Your conscience doesn't feel pain like it used to. I mean, it, it just, it's like manual labor, someone that works with their hands. I, I used Bucky Robinson as an illustration. He goes to the first service, and I used to work with Bucky when I was a young pastor. I would go on jobs with him, and, and he would lay carpet, and he would, you know, he, he'd let me help him. And I used to say, Bucky, man, your hands are crazy rough. They had big old callus. He goes, well, preacher, that's what happens when you blister your hands, and they... And, and, and you don't let them heal. You just keep working and they turn into calluses. And so his hand is just full of calluses. And this is what happens to your conscience when it's wounded and you don't do anything about it. You just keep, it gets, it, it gets calloused. It doesn't feel pain the way it used to. It's not tender anymore. And then finally, the Bible talks about a seared conscience. It's like searing the nerve endings in your hand. If I were to touch a, a, a hot light bulb and open it, and, and my hand would be seared, and I would, oh, man, that, ah. And then I did it again the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Eventually, I would, the nerve endings on my fingers would be seared. And, and that's why Scripture says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, in verse number 2, if we keep on sinning against what is true through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are Seared. We sear the nerve endings of our conscience. Number four, your conscience can be too active. It's another thing about a, a fact about your conscience. In other words, sometimes Christians feel guilty about things that just aren't wrong. I mean, I get it. It may be your preference. Like, for instance, uh, I'm thinking of things like Halloween or tattoos or certain types of clothing. I use those three illustrations because I'm not... I'm not one to really get into Halloween all that much. It's not a, something I do very often or enjoy personally. I don't have any tattoos. I'm not a big fan of tattoos, but it's no big deal. I mean, I don't preach on it. And then certain types of clothing. I mean, you'll probably never see me up here like shorts and sandals and flip-flops and T-shirts. It's okay. I think it's okay to preach in those things. It's fine. It's not a problem. I just think I look kind of weird at 56. I just soon throw out a sports coat and dress my age. You know, it's just me. Do I have a verse? Not one. So here's my, here's my thought. We're a Bible-believing church, and we struggle with trying to live out what the Bible says. Why are we trying to bring more to the table? Why are we trying to bring, like, these extra-biblical rules, make this big deal about it, split the church, fight over these things that are really not a big deal? Have a personal preference. Great. Awesome. I've got those. But don't make any kind of deal, and don't worry. And if somebody else enjoys that or does that, be happy for it. It's not, a, it's not worth fighting over. And sometimes our consciences are way too active about things. And then number five, ignoring the voice of conscience can be dangerous. It's like ripping the warning label off of a bottle of poison and putting it back in the refrigerator. It's like taking the railing off of a 17th floor apartment complex and letting your kids go out and play. 
It's dangerous. And then finally, number four, in closing, taking personal responsibility clears the conscience of guilt. And that's what happened to David. In Psalm 51, David goes on to say, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Look how beautiful this is. I did this so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin my mother did conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth. Listen to the conscious here. Can you see the conscious in this? In the inward parts, in the secret heart. Taking personal responsibility. Only when we see our need of personal responsibility can we bring regret meaningfully to God for resolution. So, I wonder what happened to Dave and Ann Wilson. I wonder what happened. I wonder if it was a Saul ending or a David ending. What do you think? Let's, let's take a look. Dave, I really have lost my feelings for you. I'm sitting there stunned. Like, what? I knew that that killed him. And I was at a point where I didn't even know what else to say to him. And so when he asked me to tell him what I meant by that, I just said, I feel like you're never home. I feel like you're not engaged with me. I feel like you're not engaged with the boys. I immediately went defensive. I was like, I'm going to reach in the back seat, pull out my little day, day planner, my calendar, and prove to her she's wrong. I have been home. I can show you. And right as I was turning like this, I sensed the Spirit of God. Don't grab that planner. Don't say a word. Listen. Just shut up and listen. And so I shared with him how at first I was really angry and then I was really bitter and then my bitterness turned to resentment and then after a while I didn't even care that he was gone. I again sensed from God's spirit to my spirit one word and the word was repent. All of a sudden he's like, honey, I just have to do something first. And I'm thinking, do something? What, well, you're going to go somewhere? You're gonna, what are you going to do? God was saying, if you want to get this right, this horizontal husband-wife relationship right, this needs to be right, the vertical relationship between God and myself. And so he, <laughs> you should have seen this. He turns around in our Honda, and he's on, I don't even know how he did it. He's on his knees on the floor of this Honda with the steering wheel in his back. And um, he starts to pray out loud. God, I repent. I'm too busy. I'm lukewarm. I know what you think of lukewarm uh, Christians, and I want to be right with you. And I repent of my sin. And I want to be the husband, and I want to be the dad you called me to be to be the dad that I preach, the dad that I know, and the husband I know what the word says, and I'm not living it, I'm saying it, but I'm not doing it, I'm a hypocrite, and I don't want to be a hypocrite anymore, I want to love her like she deserves, and I want to love my kids like they deserve, and I'm not doing it, and I ask you to give me the power to be the man 
you called me to be. The amazing thing is when I saw him do that, um, it, oh, it just broke my heart. God was saying to me, Ann Wilson, you have been trying to get your happiness for the last six months from your husband. And I never made him, I never equipped him to fill all your needs. I am the only one who can meet all of your needs. And that thought alone spurred me on to get on my knees. And for me, it was a moment of repentance too. As we prayed on our 10 year anniversary and sort of resubmitted our marriage back to Christ, as, as, as I'm sitting here 20 years later, I can tell you that moment changed our marriage. It did. It really did. It was like, if, if this is going to work, this has to be in place. That night became a moment of spiritual awakening for both of us. It was a night of rededicating our hearts to God, our hearts to Jesus, and rededicating our marriage to Him and asking Him to come in to heal us, to give us wisdom to know how to go on from here and really to change our hearts. And He did that. Dave and Ann Wilson today are doing a great work for the Lord. I want you to notice something that we've been talking about in that story. Ten years of marriage, I'm sure ups and downs and struggles and spinning out of control. Dave being gone all the time. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Tenth anniversary. Things kind of come to a head. You're the man. I'm going to reach back and... Wait a minute. I'm going to shut up and listen. And I'm going to take personal responsibility. And if you listen to Dave, he said, from that moment on, everything changed. Can I tell you something? I've had so many of those moments. I've had, a, I've had a ministry moment like that where everything changed. Everything changed as a pastor for me at some point. Everything changed in my marriage at some point. I mean, we've all been to that crossroads, that fork in the road where it's, it's, gonna, it's, it's going to end bad or it's going to start getting so much better. And it starts with personal responsibility. I have the card on the screen again i just want you to see it one more time i know we gave it out last week if you don't have a copy i think we have some on the back and i have one in my truck i have one in my uh, office and i have one in my bible because i want to i want to i want to live by this i need this prescription every day so i don't rationalize when i regret things i reflect i allow my conscience to do its work I let the voice of my conscience be as loud as she wants. I like a loud conscience. So that when I look at the rooftop and see the beautiful woman bathing, it's like, "Uh uh-uh. Oh, no, I ain't going that route. I'm going to text my wife, hey, sweetheart, I love you. Why'd you call? Trust me. I love you. See, I think these moments can be avoided in our lives if we'll learn to reflect, to take personal responsibility, and then next week, repent. It's, it's, don't let that scare you. 
Oh, he's preaching on repentance this week. Let's stay home. Well, I'll be here. It's not what you think. Repentance is beautiful. It's beautiful. It's one of the most incredible things that you'll ever do as a believer. And you'll do it a lot. And every time you do it, you'll draw closer to Jesus. Don't miss next week. If you're here today and you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, our elders will be up front. We'd love to pray with you, talk with you. If you need prayer, we'll be here. But most importantly, may we take this morning a moment to examine our hearts and to take personal responsibility. Father, I love you. I thank you so much for this service and for what you've done and what you're doing. Bless our church family. Thank you for this summer sermon series. Thank you for the word of God, the power of God. Change us from the inside out, Lord, right now, please, in Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand?